us. So I, I played football uh, in high school, and I had a football coach who, who had a saying. He, he was a very successful coach before he came to my program. My program uh, in high school was the worst in our county. We, at that point in time, I think had had eight losing seasons in a row, and uh, it, it was a miserable place to work for and play for. Uh, and my, my winning coach gets to town, and the first day he sits down with us, it's my senior year, and uh, there were several of us on this team that had colleges uh, approaching us about playing college football, and uh, there were several of us who definitely did not have that, as you could tell from our record. And so he gets in front of us, and he says, look here, boys, here's the deal. You got to fake it till you make it. You got to fake it till you make it. And I, I remember thinking as a senior in high school, I'm not really sure what that means. I, I, I don't, we suck, right? We've lost eight seasons in a row, and as much as you want to come in here with all of your pedigree, we've lost eight seasons, in a, and I'm not talking about like five and five, ten, I'm talking about 0 and 10, 1 and 9, my senior year, we were 3 and 7, right? We, we were solid, and he comes in and he says, look, I know y'all are a bunch of losers, but we're going to be winners. You got to fake it till you make it. And I don't really know where, where, when and where this saying got popularized. It was somewhere uh, in the 70s where, where this saying just kind of took off throughout culture, uh, but it, it kind of derived with a guy named William James. Now, he's a, a, a psychologist from the 19th century, and William James kind of came up with the idea of pragmatism, but he, he kind of coined this idea of fake it till you make it. Again, he didn't coin the phrase, but he was a very successful guy, and he was actually a, a graduate from Harvard. He was one of the first professors in our country to teach psychology as a course, and William James writes a book called On Vital Reserves, The Energies of Men and the Gospel of Relaxation. That was a pretty offensive title, I would imagine, from a Harvard grad, because at that point in time, Harvard was still pretty much a, a religious school. They put out pastors in, in this place. But in this book, James describes what it means to kind of fake it till you make it. And he has this quote. He says this. He says, action seems to follow feeling, but really action and feeling go together. And by regulating the action, which is under the more direct control of the will, we can indirect, indirectly regulate the feeling, which is not. Thus, the sovereign voluntary path to cheerfulness is, if our spontaneous cheerfulness be lost, is to sit up cheerfully, to look around cheerfully, and to act and speak as if cheerfulness were already there. If such conduct does not make you soon feel cheerful, nothing else on that occasion can. So to feel brave, act as if we were brave. Use all of our will to that end, and a courage fit will very likely replace the fit of fear. If you have no clue of what I just said, neither do I. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, William James kind of comes up with this idea, and at the, the core of it, it's basically fake it to till you make it. He says that, look, if you're lacking something, just kind of act like you've got that thing, and eventually it will happen. Now, we know that uh, that's probably just malarkey. Like, it's just really not true, especially if you think about, think, think about uh, 
somebody struggling with uh, depression or anxiety or some just really troubled times in your life and you walk in and say, hey, just act like everything's okay and eventually it will be okay. That is some really bad advice. Like they might get pretty mad at you. Now there's a certain degree, certainly, of fake it till you make it that kind of makes sense. Like if you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, then maybe you can kind of will yourself to have a better day. But here's what I know to be true. What you do on the outside doesn't guarantee change on the inside. Let, Let me say that again. What you do on the outside doesn't guarantee change on the inside. And what we're going to be talking about this morning is this idea that these people, as Chelsea read earlier in Mark chapter 12, these Pharisees, these religious rulers and leaders would come up to Jesus oftentimes, and they would ask him a bunch of really difficult questions. They would try to put him in a jam so that he would slip up, so that he would give them the wrong answer. And here's the problem with what they were doing. These people were coming to Jesus with their outside looking as shined and as polished as possibly could be, but the insides were completely and totally rotten. I want to read a passage for you from Luke chapter 11. I don't have the passage on, on, uh, on the screens, but if you can follow along with me really quickly. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. Now this Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord says back to this Pharisee, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice, and you neglect the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In this passage, Jesus shows us that there are people who are trying to, in essence, fake it till they make it. They are trying to change their exterior, hoping that their interior will become clean at some point. But Jesus looks at them, those religious leaders, and maybe you and I at times, and says, your outside is a reflection of your inside. It is not vice versa. You're not all of a sudden going to will yourself to be this amazing Christ follower. Now, I I had a pastor growing up who used to tell this story, and so I I want to give a little bit of, uh, I guess, caution to to what I'm saying. This pastor in college, he met a young lady who was kind of falling away from the faith. And so he challenged her. He said, hey, why don't you do this? For 40 days, take my challenge. Every day, wake up, read your Bible, pray, seek the Lord with all you can, follow the precepts of God, and talk to me at the end of 40 days, and let's see where you kind of are in your faith. And so that's what she did. She woke up day one, she read her Bible, she followed the things of God, and she noticed at the end of the day, she kind of had a better feeling about herself. And so she goes to day two, she goes, I'll do this again. 
day two, same thing, and so on and so forth. And at the end of 40 days, she, she goes to my pastor and she says, wow, I just really feel the presence of God. I just really noticed how different my life was because I did these things. And, and it's a great story, and I'm glad to hear that this young lady came to Christ or, I guess, strengthened her faith in Christ because of these things. But what I would say to you and what I think Jesus is going to say to us this morning is that going through the motions of faith is not faith. We need to have a firm foundation in Jesus, and when that happens, then those actions that we perform every day, those things like reading your Bible and praying and being able to have conversations with people that are difficult and have them with the love of God happen because of the new spirit that God has put in side of us. Doing actions will not guarantee your place with the Father. And I can, I can uh, read Matthew chapter 7. And we can look at this really quickly. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Now people have come to Jesus. And Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But catch this, but the one who does the will of my Father. Now, that, there's a do there, right? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, there's another action, many will say to me, these, these people will come to me, they will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy, there's another action in your name, and cast out demons in your name, there's another action, and do my, many mighty works in your name. Three actions these people have come to Jesus and said, didn't we do these three things? I will come do these in your name, Jesus, and then I will declare to those people, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, these people were doing the actions of God in their minds, and possibly even in their hearts to their understanding, but what they were not doing was the will of God. And this is where the fake it till you make it mantra begins to kind of fall apart. See, remember that you are the best liar when you lie to yourself. You're the best liar when you lie to yourself. Derek Landy, a famous writer, says this, The lies we tell other people are nothing to the lies that we tell ourselves. See, these people had told themselves that I'm, I'm doing the work of God. I'm, I'm just going to keep moving and performing these actions and doing these things. And what they were really doing is they're really telling themselves, by doing these, I'm showing God that I love him. But internally, nothing had really changed. They, they didn't really have a love for God. They were kind of just saving their skin. And this leads us to what we're going to talk about and camp out for just a few minutes today. So we've been talking about living the Christian life in 2020. To, to love God, love people, and invest in his kingdom. And we, we've been kind of opening up Mark 12 and, and going through many of the interactions that Jesus had with people of that day. And Jesus had encounters with all sorts of people, religious people, non-religious people. And, and most times, as Chelsea said, when they would come to him with loaded questions, Jesus really wouldn't give them a straight answer. Jesus kind of turned away going, yeah, eh, mm, no, I'm not really going to answer that. But then there's one encounter there's one encounter where this, this religious person comes to Jesus. 
and he asks him how to get in heaven or what is the most important commandment. And Jesus answers him by quoting Deuteronomy 6. And in, in the Jewish culture, this is known as the Shema. It's a very important passage. And, and, and as a Jewish family, what you would do every day is you would quote the Shema. You, you would quote that passage that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with, your, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And then Jesus continues, and he says, the second is this. The second is this. And this is the passage that Chelsea read earlier, Mark 12, 28-34. And so last week, we spoke about what it means to love God. We discussed that loving God is not just this internal feeling, although it certainly is that, but it doesn't just stay there. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6. He's quoting the Shema. And what he basically does is he ties the first four of the Ten Commandments together, and he says, look, these things, they're pretty much all one thing. Love God. And we discussed that to love God means to express that in an external, tangible fashion. We cannot just say, oh, I love God with all my heart, and there are nothing to show for that. There is nothing, I should say, to show for that in the external fashion. The way we love our spouse will reveal how, we, how well we love the Lord. The way we love our children will reveal how we love God. The way we handle difficult circumstances will reveal how we love God. And then he gets to this place in this passage. Jesus gets here and he says, The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what I want to do is I kind of want to break down what this means for us. And he says the second is this. Now, th this is more important than just some list where you have the most important thing is love God, and then the second thing is this. No, really the, the phrasing there that he would use would sometimes translate it, the second is like it, meaning that number one and number two are actually kind of joined together. It's not just this list as the way we would think of one, two, three, four. It's really just I have two things to say, and so the easiest for me to say is first and then second, but they're really joined together. And so you can't do number one if you don't also do number two because they are equally important because the first four of the Ten Commandments are to love God, and the latter six are to love your neighbor as yourself, or love people. What's important to note is that this is not just a secondary thing. This isn't just some secondary call to love God. He says love, or love people, excuse me. He says love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I think most of us understand what it means to love God. Whether you've been raised in the church or not, when someone says love God, I think we all kind of get that to a certain degree. And it really doesn't make us that uncomfortable. What I do think most of us don't fully recognize, and if we do fully recognize this, it should make us uncomfortable, is to love your neighbor as yourself. So I, I want to break this down. What does it mean to be a neighbor? Let's not overthink this. It's everyone you come in contact with. It, it's the male 
person who delivers your mail every day. It's the teacher at your kid's school. It's the person at your office who gets on your ever-loving nerves. It's your spouse. It's the atheist who tells you that you are wrong. Your neighbor is anyone that you come in contact with. And we can see this from a passage in Luke chapter 10 called the Good Samaritan. I want to read it really quickly. Luke chapter 10 verse 25 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he says to him, What is written in the law? How, how do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he says to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, the people who, by the way, a Samaritan wouldn't want any interactions with a Jew. And as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He went above and beyond. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever, you, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And he says, Which of these three people do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And get this, he says, the one who showed him mercy. He didn't say the Samaritan because he didn't even want to acknowledge who would go to those extreme lengths to love someone. And Jesus said to him, now you go and do likewise. See, neighbors are everyone. And this should not be a comfortable command for you. Now, maybe you got a bigger heart than me, but let me tell you something. When I read a story like this, and I see the extreme love that Jesus is calling us to have, I get uncomfortable because it is a radical faith. Imagine going down the road in our century, right? You see someone broken down. You see them, maybe they're beaten, maybe they're hurt, whatever. You stop, and you go to the extreme lengths that this man went to help them. All of us go, well, I don't know if I can. I have my schedule. I don't know if it's safe. I don't know if it's a wise thing to do. I got my, my kid in the car. And these are all very real things for us to be concerned about. But Jesus doesn't say in this passage that the man was worried about his well-being. And Jesus said the man stopped and helped him. He went out of his way. He takes him, puts him up in a place, pays for him to be made whole again to a certain degree. And I see this and I go, man, I, that is a radical kind of love. That is a radical faith that Jesus calls us to have. Because we, we have to do these things. We have to live this life 
even when people do not do the same to us. Matthew seven twelve. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Romans 13, 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. This kind of love is not the kind of thing that you and I can fake it until we make it. Loving God has called us to recognize that love can only come from one place. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. Loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is confused. Nope. He's, he's just mistaken. Nope. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Loving God comes, loving people, excuse me, comes from God. And so very quickly as I begin to land this plane, and and this is a very difficult topic. I, I hope you can somehow understand and begin to, to have a, a somewhat of acknowledgement of what it means to love people. This is not just some easy calling that God looks at his people and gives. This is a very weighty thing. The first thing that God tells us to do in order to love people, in order to love people the way that he has called us to do, we need to recognize the love of God. It is impossible to love people the way that God has called us to love people without recognizing God's love for us and for people. Sure, you can love people to a certain degree. You can go to certain lengths. There are people in this world who have loved well. They have not loved to the extent that God has loved without recognizing God and his love for us. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, that means while we were still not listening, while we were still disobeying, while we were still running from him, while we were still scoffing, spitting, and putting his son on the cross, Christ died for us. Romans 10, 12 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you can do that, you begin to tap into the understanding of what it means to love people. Recognize the love that God has for you. The second thing we need is we need each other. We need each other. Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Think of it like this. You're cooking something really good, right? 
Do you just let it sit there for hours and never touch it? No, no, no. You kind of stir it up at times. You, you kind of taste the seasonings and add a little more. What God wants me and you to do for each other is to stir up this love inside of each other. See, we, ha- we recognize the love because we already did step one, and we recognize what God has done for us, how much he loves us. And so we have step one done. Step two is I need you to come to me and say, Chris, let's stir up love. I need to come to you and say, hey, let's stir up love with each other. What are some things that we can do to reach more people? What are some things that we can do to encourage each other? What are some things we can do when we're walking through difficulties in life to be able to love people more fully? I need someone to kick me in the butt and say, Chris, do better, right? I mean, don't you? I I do because I don't always want to love people. Sometimes I want to spat, you know, smack people, just like, shut up, stop talking to me. Like, you are so annoying. And sometimes you go, wow, Chris, you're so annoying. I hear that, right? We need to recognize the love that God has for us, and then we need each other to say, hey, hey, bring it back. Don't smack them. You'll go to jail, right? Show them the love that God has for you. How can you love them better? I love the example of Paul. He's in prison, right? And he's writing a letter to a church, and he talks about the joy that he has in them. Philippians 1, 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, because they got it. I am so thankful. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me. We do this together of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. I'm in jail, and I want your love to abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to glory and praise of God. This man's in jail, and he is thankful that they understand what it means to love each other and to spur each other on. And the third thing, so the first one, we've got to recognize the love of God. The second thing, we need each other to encourage that. The third thing is love does. Love does. I don't think anyone aims to be typical. Really, most people even vow to themselves sometime in high school or college not to be typical. But still, they just kind of loop back to it somehow. Like the circular rails of a train at an amusement park, the scripts we know offer a brand of security or predictability of safety for us. But the problem is this. They only take us where we've already been. They loop us back to places where everyone can easily go. Not necessarily where we were made to go. Living a different kind of life takes some guts and grit and a new way of seeing things. That's a quote from Bob Goff, the author of a book called Love Does. 
Bob Goff writes this book and he says, we cannot continue to do the same things that we've always done and expect a different result. See, in our world, there's a lot of church folk. There's a lot of people who after church will go to lunch together. And they'll go sit at a restaurant and they'll order their food, they'll have their kids, and, and, and they'll be probably somewhat decent. And then it'll come to time to, time to sign the check and to tip. And they'll tip poorly. If you've ever been a waiter or a waitress, if you ask someone in that industry, what is one of the worst days to work, they will tell you. Sunday after the church crowd comes. Because us church folks aren't always nice. We're a little angry because the pastor went too long. Right? We're hungry because our kid won't stop yelling. We, wanted, we got this going on. We're busy. We're doing that. And, and then the check comes and we go, eh, it's 10%. Or worse. I'm going to give you one penny because I thought the service was terrible and I just want to show you how bad it was. Right? We've seen this. If you know somebody in the restaurant business, they've seen this. They've experienced it. And whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent, whether that waiter or waitress was the best server or the worst server, here's the deal. When we come to a restaurant and we're dressed in the nines or, or we talk about church, we got our church bulletin on the table for some reason, and someone recognizes that you're a Christian, everything that you do and say goes back to the person and work of Jesus Christ in their mind. They're not just judging you, although they probably are doing that. They are certainly judging the God that you worship. We cannot continue to do the same things. What about this? On the back of your car, my dad used to say, I don't put something in the back of my car so people don't know I'm a Christian because I'm going to cut them off in <laughs> traffic, right? But we put Piedmont Church or I Love God or whatever on the back of our car, and then we drive like jerks, right? We, we, we cut people off, no, ah! right, like whatever. Like, you're an idiot, go! Like we're honking our horn like it's New York City. And then we wonder why people go, man, those Christians just stink. Like they are just rude. Or we're loud-mouthing something on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. We're the guy at the sports game that is just an absolute jerk. Yes, the ref knows he missed the call. You ain't got to tell him his mama's bad. Like, it's all right. Like, it's okay. Let it go. It's just a game. Maybe it's not to you. That's probably not all right. But it is just a game, right? We as Christians have to recognize that there are people out there who in the name of Christ do a lot of bad to the name of Christ. And so what you and I have to do, unfortunately, is we've got to love even beyond their faults. Like, we, we've got to love harder, stronger, faster. Because there are people who need to see that kind of love. They need to see the kind of love that God has called us to do, and we can't fake that. We need to recognize the kind of love that God has for us. We need each other to encourage each other. 
and we got to just do it. Like we can't just keep talking about it. Uh, Francis Chan told this story one time. He had a, a, a daughter. She would come to him, and he would say, hey, all right, now go clean your room. And so she would go, and she'd be gone for a little while, and she'd come back. And she'd go, Dad, I thought really hard. I thought a lot about cleaning my room. I, I mean, I studied it. I, I, I put together a great plan. And he says, is your room clean? Well, no, Dad, but I thought about it really hard. And he goes, well, you missed the point. Go clean your room. And in many ways, isn't that what you and I do in our Christian faith? We gather in places like this. We go to Bible studies. We talk about Jesus a lot. We talk about loving people and how we need to do this better. And at the end of the day, do we do anything about it? Do we, do we just leave the room dirty? We need to look to God. We need to look to each other. And out of the outpouring of the love of God that we have seen, we need to love people. Matthew 5.16 says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works. It doesn't say so that they may see how great a Christian you are by your faith, by the Christianese that you speak, by how, how much attendance you have at a church program, or how much you serve, or how much you give. It says, but they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, we are not justified by our works, but our works confirm the justification that we have received through Christ in faith of him. We just got to do it. We got to love God, love people, invest in his kingdom.